You are listening to a message from Southwood Presbyterian Church in Huntsville, Alabama. Our passion is to experience and express grace. Join us. All right, if you have Bibles with you or on devices or wherever, open them to 1 Peter chapter 1. We're taking a brief break again from Luke. We're going to look at a few verses here in 1 Peter, and I also have to say this. I know that there's a congregational meeting next week, and it's about me, so, but this is not a campaign appearance. <laughs> has nothing to do with that. 1 Peter 3, I'm going to read verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray together as we approach the study of this portion of God's Word. Father, what words, what richness, what... uh, Your Word is just beyond comprehension in so many ways, but yet it is simple enough that we can understand and our hearts be set aflame. And so I pray that you would do that in this time together, that by your Spirit that you would set our hearts aflame, that you would cause the realities of what is said here to be planted deep in our souls and there have it bear fruit and transform us. Father, use my weakness and the weakness of my words Use them by the power of your Spirit in such a way that when all is said and done, we know that we've heard from you, not from just another man. So would you meet us now in this study, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of our men have been studying a book um, these last few weeks. We're in the midst of it. Uh, It's called The Benedict 
option. And it's a book written by a guy named Rod Dreher. It was on the New York Times bestselling list. And in the beginning of that book, he makes this statement. He said, American Christians are going to have to come to terms with the brute fact that we live in a culture, one in which our beliefs make increasingly little sense. We speak a language that the world more and more either cannot hear or finds offensive in its ears. You know, I think in a lot of ways, this is a reality in so much of the world. In so much of our country, in in many ways, we here in the South have been shielded from this because church still plays such a strong role in our culture. But the reality of what he said is coming. It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of when. So the question when that day comes, is how are we going to stand up against this rushing tide of secularism or antagonism that is directed towards not just the church, but towards God and all things of him? How are we going to hold up? How are we going to stand firm in our faith? when our jobs are put at risk because we will not, cannot affirm the values that your company now celebrates? How are you going to stand firm as a student when in order to pass a required class, you are expected to profess certain beliefs And you are expected to reject others, and those others may be very dear to you. How are you going to stand firm when social media, where, you know, you become famous or infamous, either on YouTube or whatever, because you have said something that now everybody else is ridiculing Because it's so yesterday. And it's so out of place in now our modern culture. How are we going to stand firm? This is the question that Peter is dealing with here in 1 Peter. And what he's going to tell us is that instead of us just becoming more determined... And maybe more committed to certain things. He's telling us that there has to be another reason. There's something else has to be out there that we're living for or that we're looking to. That's going to keep our feet firmly fixed on the foundation. We need a greater hope than what is offered to us in the here and now. A promise of something that is worth so much more that is so attractive and so glorious that we will joyfully give up 
anything now in order to gain what is promised in the days to come. We need a hope that endures. And this is what Peter is doing here in this letter. Peter is writing to a bunch of people, believers who are scattered. He calls them exiles. Exiles through this area of what is now central Turkey. But these believers are facing these kind of trials. They have been pushed out of society. They are losing their place in their professional guilds because of their new faith. They are even, they are losing their property. They are being imprisoned and even put to death. And so Peter is trying to encourage them under this kind of almost unimaginable pressure to not just to stand firm where they are, but to stand firm with joy, to rejoice, to be glad. We are those who can rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. (laughs) And so he's trying to give them the fuel to stay firm through the moment until the day comes when their hope will be realized. He said, hold on now. Don't give up. Because another day is coming. And so as he does this, in this passage, there's far, far more in these these few verses that we can deal with. But as, of course, we're going to look at three. Um, But there are some very critical things here that Peter is going to encourage these believers to remember and to focus on as they hope and work to stand firm. The first point is that enduring love flows from worship. Look at the way he starts this passage. He said, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. These first few verses are not about their situation. They're not about anything else but God himself. It is all about God. It's not about me My standing firm cannot be about me. It cannot be about my determination. It has to be and will always be about him. Standing firm begins, perseveres, and ends with worship. I love this definition that John Piper gives about worship. A sermon that he preached Back in uh, 93, he said, Worship is when the mind apprehends great truth about God and the heart kicks in with deep feelings of brokenness or wonder and gladness and admiration and gratitude. And the mouth says something like, Blessed be God. Oh, blessed and praised and honored and glorified be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, worship is coming to this realization 
that we stand before someone glorious. In worship here, it really, in this context, is about two things. The first thing, worship is about coming to grips with his beauty and the treasure that he is. It is about just the glory that comes from him, the benefit, the blessing it is to be one of his own. Coming, becoming so overwhelmed and captured by his glory and beauty to the point that it elicits this response from us, a response of love, joy, gratitude, and trust. And when we are in a hard place, waiting and persevering, we need these kind of reminders. I don't know if you can see. On my phone, there's a picture. A picture of someone very precious to me. And, I, and she's on that, my phone for a very good reason. It is, every time I open, pull up my phone, I remember I remember this lovely lady that I'm married to that 36 years ago I fell in love with. And, I, and she reminds me, this picture reminds me of all that I have in relationship to her, all the, the, just the joy and the benefit, the good things she has been for me. And I, I know a lot of you probably have Pictures on your phones. Better not be hers. <laughs> but see, in life, there are all kinds of things that are clamoring for my affections. And we're not just talking about relational things here, but it could be work, it could be career, it could be prestige, it could be status, it could be how you're going to vote next week. It could be all kinds of things. And so to remember her is vital for me in my devotion to her to remain fixed, especially if there's a long separation, if there's a long time when we're not together. I need that remembrance. This, in a lot of ways, is what worship does. Worship is just coming back, seeing the portrait of our true love and remembering. Remembering all that we have in him. And Peter is calling us to something, to remember all of these blessings. But there's something else that worship does. Worship is not just about what we are enamored with, what we love. Worship is also about what we fear. And Peter kind of alludes to this as he goes through here, that we would obtain the salvation of our souls and so forth. You know, what has the power to change your behavior? What has the power to keep you up at night? What has the power to manipulate you, to direct you. 
You know, if my greatest fear is to become infamous on YouTube, or if my greatest fear is to be ridiculed on social media, I'm going to be ruled by that. I'm going to change my behavior according to that so that this group of people that I think I desperately need acceptance from, I'm going to serve them and give them what they want so that they will give me what I want. That is worship. That is what we fear. See, Peter (laughs) is calling us to a fear that's far beyond that. He's calling us to a fear that's far beyond the moment. This is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who caused us to be born again to a living hope. This is the God that doesn't just have the power of making you popular or ridiculed. It is the power of life itself. Life for eternity. And Peter's saying, don't worry about these others Worship and remember who holds the stars in his hands. Remember who holds all leadership, all kings and nations. And remember who is God and who isn't. And so worship is all about whatever I want the most, whatever I look to the most, whatever I'm willing to serve the most is remembering that life is bigger than me. It is bigger than my situation. It is bigger than my temporary suffering. It is bigger than my world. And the one who holds the power of life itself is more beautiful and more glorious and more desirable that anything this world will ever offer to me. Worship will enable us to endure. But Peter also makes another thing, another point here, and it's that enduring hope waits for the promise. He reminds these exiles here that you're in a hard place, you are waiting, and what you're waiting for, you can't taste and feel at the moment. It's promised and it's coming another day. But he's telling them, but wait. It is promised. And the promise is an inheritance. He's talking about this inheritance that is coming. This is inheritance that's way beyond anything that you'd ever experience in this life. It's way beyond anything that Publishers Clearinghouse could offer you. It is an inheritance that can't be taken from you. It'll never fade. It will never be corrupted. It's guarded in heaven for you. It's a done deal. It is not, it cannot be stolen. It will not fluctuate with the market. But it is not now. 
it is still to come. And so we wait. But it is a promise that is so sweet, so promising, so desirable, so rich that it's worth waiting for and saying no to any other competitors. One of my favorite movies that I just, I can watch pretty much daily is Princess Bride. Amen? Uh, Yeah. Princess Bride is a fairy tale. But there's something about, and I've probably said this before, there's something about fairy tales that ring true. And these fairy tales elicit from us hope. And this one, in particular, does this. This is, you know, it's a story about a farm boy named Wesley. He meets Buttercup, and they have true love. You know, it's not just something that happens every day. It's true love. Well, Wesley leaves to go make his way in the world, and he promises to come back. He says, well, how will I know you come back? And he says, well, it's true love. So he leaves, and time lapses. Then she, Buttercup hears that his ship was attacked by the dread pirate Roberts. And, and everybody knew that the dread pirate Roberts never left survivors. And so she assumed Wesley was dead. She gave up hope, got engaged to Prince Humperdinck. Well, as we know, through various events, Wesley comes back. They are reunited. And his question to her is, why did you not wait? She said, well, I thought you were dead. And he said, well, death can't stop true love. It can only delay it for a little while. Then she says, I will never doubt again. The love that she found was so valuable that it was worth denying all other rivals and waiting as long as she had to for her true love. Now, This is a fairy tale. Pretty darn good one. It's a fairy tale. And we know that human, you know, it's based on romance, human romance. And we think that that is the most powerful thing in the world. And we know that's not true. But we're not talking about the promise made by some farm boy. We're talking about a promise that is made to us by the God-man. Jesus himself. And I like the way Peter puts it here. In verse 8, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. The promise is not just a bunch of stuff. We're not waiting for a time when all that we ever eat will be dark chocolate. And every golf shot will be straight. 
Actually, I don't think golf will be in heaven. I think it comes from hell. (laughs) But that's not what we wait for. We wait for true love. The love of God demonstrated to us in his son. And he says, I'm coming. This relationship, it's like being in a Christian is like the engagement period, though so much more than just engagement. So we've been betrothed to our true love. And he is gone to make things ready. And he says, I'm coming. Wait for me. And now we're in the interim. We're in the waiting, and it's hard. And we'll be ridiculed for it. We'll be pressured to reject it. We'll remember the things that he told us and then think, well, he's not coming. Is the promise really true? But it is our true love. He has promised, and he will come. And we can wait because the fulfillment of that promise is far beyond anything we'll ever know or be offered or could experience in this life. The third thing that Peter says, he says right up front, how do we know the promise is true? How do we know? Because of the resurrection. Enduring hope stands firmly on the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How do we know the promise will be fulfilled? Because we've seen it fulfilled. Christ went to his death. And everybody thought hope was gone. It was lost. But that was Friday. Sunday. He was not there. He was seen. He was embraced. They spoke to him. He came up from the dead. And if Christ was raised from the dead in time and space. If it is a historical event, a fact of history, then every promise that he has made to us is good. I like the way Tim Keller put it just this last week. He said, if Jesus rose from the dead then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't, then why worry about any of what he said? If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then you can go do whatever you want. You can go find your pleasure wherever you want. Give in to the culture, give in to the movements of our society. Just follow along everybody else and hope in what they hope 
and do what they do because that's all there is. But if the resurrection is true, everything Jesus promised is sure. When he says that the meek will inherit the earth, the meek are going to inherit the earth. The meek are going to struggle now, and it seems like the strong are winning, but Jesus has promised. And a promise based on the resurrection from the dead. When Jesus says that your Father in heaven knows every hair that falls from your head, he's that intimately acquainted with you, he knows that promise is sure because he was raised from the dead. Our hope stands and falls. It won't fall. It will always stand on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Everything hinges on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If he is raised, then every power on earth, every kingdom, Every dominion, every government, every country, every voice out there on the internet, every blogger, everybody serves in submission to one king. The king who sits on his throne and who rules with a firm grip and who will one day balance the scales That's his promise. And that promise is good because that king came out of the tomb, came to new life, and validated everything that was said, every promise. So, the question for us What are you waiting for? I don't mean just waiting in a a temporal sense. But what are we waiting for? Just another momentary pleasure? You know, uh, more material comfort? The popularity with all your friends? What are we waiting for? Remember, we have hope in a risen Savior. We have hope because the Savior went to his death, was judged by the judge of all things, and came to life to vindicate all things. We wait on a risen Savior. 
who has promised. And he's worth waiting for. This is why we celebrate this table. This is is why we do it in worship. Because it helps us remember. It helps us to see the beauty of this God for whom we wait. Because he showed true love in that he laid down his life. It was not just a presumption of being dead. He actually died. A death that no other human could die. So that we wouldn't have to. He paid the penalty that we could be made clean and spotless for the wedding. And now we wait for our bridegroom. This is a foretaste of the wedding feast for which we wait. You're going to get a little taste of bread, a little taste of juice. But know this, this is a feast. This is the down payment of the feast that's to come so that you can have hope. For more information, visit us online at southwood.org.